Hey, you are currently listening to season three of the Learn to Co with Me podcast. I'm your host, Laurence Bradford, and this season I chat with a range of individuals who work in tech. Looking for a coding bootcamp? Boston and Philadelphia-based Launch Academy has helped over 500 students launch coding careers since 2013 with curriculum that's updated every quarter based on hiring managers' feedback and lifetime post-grad support. Find out more at launchacademy.com. Hey listeners, welcome to the Learn to Code With Me podcast. I'm your host, Laurence Bradford. In today's episode, I talk with Yasmin Mustafa. Yasmin is the CEO and founder of Roar for Good, a hardware company that provides wearable safety devices for women. She also started the Girl Develop It chapter in Philly. In our conversation, we discuss Yasmin's journey into tech, how she became a serial entrepreneur, and much, much more. If you want to learn how to take that first step to becoming an entrepreneur, this episode is for you. Remember, you can get show notes for this episode plus more information about Yasmin at learntocodewith.me forward slash podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe on whichever podcast player you listen on. And if you are feeling particularly generous, a review would be awesome as well. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. Hi, Yasmin. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Could you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. My name is Yasmin Mustafa, and I am the CEO and co-founder of Roar for Good. Awesome. I'm so excited to have you on. And Yasmin and I actually connected a while back, several years ago, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, um, during the show, about how we connected through Girl Development in Philadelphia. But first, I kind of like to rewind even further back in your past. And could you tell me how you first got into tech? Sure. Yeah, it was, you could say, happen chance and perseverance. I can't say that word. Uh, I was back in college, I had to do an internship as part of my major. And I was doing one I didn't really like. And a friend of mine was doing one that he loved. And it was time for him to leave. So he referred me to it. The, the teacher that I had didn't let me switch over, so I decided to just go for it anyway and did both on top of going to full-time. And that company, it was an early-stage technology firm, so they worked with very, very early tech entrepreneurs, basically helping them launch their idea off the ground, helping them build their business plans and the financial models and the go-to-market strategies. And that was my first foray into technology. Awesome. And what did you study when you were in school? Because you mentioned an internship. Good question. I, I changed majors four times. So my first major was mechanical engineering. It was actually my dad enrolled me into school as a mechanical engineer because he was a mechanical engineer. I hated it more so because he forced it upon me. And my first semester, I fell in love in, uh, with graphic design after taking a Photoshop class. So I switched. He stopped paying for my tuition. And as much as I loved graphic design, I ended up switching from that two semesters later because I was a perfectionist back then. And I would stay at the computer lab fixing every little pixel, spending hours and hours. One day, the power went out after working on this one project for eight hours. I had not saved anything. And the next day, I walked into admissions and changed my major. (laughs) <laughs> I changed it to psychology because I've always been fascinated with why people do what they do and people watching. And then after 
realizing that it would take me a long time to really get into the field because most of the time you need your master's and I was paying my way through a school, I switched with uh, to entrepreneurship because I figured with that, I can do anything that I wanted. Yeah, wow. And how long did it take you then to finish school um, switching majors like a few times? It took me seven and a half years. And it was a mix of switching majors and also a mix of going part-time while I was working full-time. I had a lot of trouble initially going to school because I had learned while I was applying to school that I was actually considered undocumented. So I was filling out my college admissions papers, came across a field asking for my social security number, didn't know what it was as a 15-year-old junior in high school, went to my parents, they went to an immigration lawyer, and lo and behold, a couple, a couple weeks later, we find, we find out that we were actually considered undocumented, even though we had been brought in as refugees from the Persian Gulf War 12 years prior. So it was uh, a big mess. Um, but it all ended up working out. Oh my goodness. I, f- I feel like I maybe read that somewhere in an interview with you, but I totally forgot. Um, or I, I had no idea that's, but that's like even more impressive. So kudos to you. I mean, that's amazing. Um, and that must've been really difficult at the time, but I'm sure it sounds like obviously you made your way through and look at you now, you're doing so many awesome things. Thank you. It was definitely one of the most challenging parts of my life and, and things eventually did work out. Yeah. So, so, okay, you mentioned throughout college, you were working full-time, you were working part-time, you were going to school part-time, you are going to school full-time. Um, after your first, like, four-way or foray in tech um, th- through this internship and the um, experience you mentioned before, what was kind of your next move then? Did you stay in tech? Did you um, switch industries at all? Or, yeah, what was that like? Yeah, so at this consulting company, right after school, they actually ended up hiring me part-time, and then I moved into full-time a few months later, and then I actually worked my way up to partner a couple years later, and I really loved it, and looking back, it was a great experience for me because I got to meet a lot of entrepreneurs doing very different things in technology amongst different verticals, hitting different target markets, and I was able to get exposed with a variety of industries uh, and and startups really quickly within the span of three years, which just made me fall in love with the industry. I, I would remember being on the opposite end of an entrepreneur that was sharing the latest idea and thinking to myself, you know, one day I want to be you. I want to be on the other side of the table. And what got me into my first startup was while I was running that technology company, I decided to start a blog to build thought leadership and help grow our audience and our company name. And I took it from a couple hits a day to a few hundred, eventually making it to the top 100,000 blogs according to Technorati, which was a blog directory that mattered, you know, 10 years ago. And someone along the way told me that you could make money while you were blogging. And as a broke entrepreneur, as a, blo- as a broke um, consultant, rather, I was very intrigued by the idea. So I remember looking into it, adding some ads up on the site, not quite sure if I did it right, and kind of forgetting about it. And then I wrote this one blog post. It was the silliest blog post I had ever written. It took me like 20 minutes compared to the usual hour and a half. It was on the top 20 entrepreneur or, or the top 20 quotes for entrepreneurs Of course, that was the post that blew up and it was on the front page of Dig and it was on StumbleUpon and it was everywhere. 
And I think we got maybe 15,000, 18,000 hits the day that it, it was everywhere. And then 45 days later, I got two checks. And I think all in all, they totaled maybe like 150, 170. But I was like, whoa, you know, I made money. Uh, and uh, this is kind of cool. Let me see if I can make more money from, from this. And I tried to find a way to make the whole affiliate mar marketing process a little bit more streamlined and, and really couldn't. Uh, in order to add an affiliate ad to your site, you have to go sign up for an affiliate network. You have to wait to get accepted. You have to go sign up to the specific advertiser, wait to get accepted again, find the product keyword, and then get the link and add it to your site. It was a very, very cumbersome process. And I decided to just automate it. And I gave my notice at the consulting company and went off and started working on that. Oh, wow. So you, so, okay, so... Real quick, what year was this or around what year was this in? This was 2009. My first day at this company was April Fool's Day, 2009. So you left the other company you were at to, was it, were you starting your own company or you were like running your blog and more so monetizing that? Yeah, I was running the blog and monetizing it through the consulting company. And then I decided to leave and start my own company creating software that would automate the, the ads. So you didn't have to go search for them yourself and, get, and wait to get accepted and so on. Got it. And I see that now. I'm like also peering at your LinkedIn at 123linkit.com. So that must have been what yes. that was. Yes. Okay, cool. So you went from there to, to um, starting your own company. Um, and... Okay, so that was like the okay, so that was like your first. I guess you said you were partner at, at the at the previous one, but that was like your first my first startup. solo, your yeah, first solo, my first solo yeah. Startup. So, what was that like? And I also want to know. And we're sort of like we're jumping ahead, but whatever. So, because now you're um, the founder of Roar for Good, and I'm so curious, like, what were your experiences like starting a company in like in like 2009 versus starting one later in 2014? Um, I'm sure, obviously, you're much more seasoned, so I'm sure you had learned a lot that you could apply. But was there anything that was easier or different um, in, in those two instances? Sure. Yeah. The, the common thread is that I was a non-techie building tech companies. So the very first one, one, two, three, link it. I was a non-coder, non-software person building a software company. And now with Roar, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a hardware person building a hardware company. And both of them, both the companies stemmed from a personal experience that made me want to create what I was doing because I couldn't find it anywhere else. Uh, but to jump back, yeah, one, two, three, link it is actually what led me into girl development. And I had a lot of challenges running the company because I had trouble conversing with my developers. They would come to me and they would say, I could do it this way or this way. Which way do you want? And just not knowing anything about technology, I would say, well, you know, you tell me what I should be doing. And you can imagine that led down one path to another path where everything just kept getting messed up. And we would launch updates that were very buggy and it was, I was just not doing very well running this, this company. And I learned about girl develop it. Actually, even before that, I tried teaching myself how to code and it didn't, I didn't do a good job. <laughs> I wanted to throw my laptop out the window. I started a um, beginning coding club in the area 
that and was going well at the beginning, but then existing developers took it over. Um, it was a Ruby on Rails coding club, and eventually I just let them take it because I couldn't even understand what they were saying. And then I learned about Girl Developer in New York, and I hopped on a two-hour megabus there uh, to take a two-hour class and a two-hour megabus back uh, because I was so excited about the possibility of learning with other students and and other beginners uh, at a very affordable cost. And I just I fell in love with it. By the end, I learned how to build a website. I took a few more classes. I learned more about front front end, back end technologies, databases, and was able to kind of understand how things worked. And I remember going up to the founder and saying, hey, you should bring this to Philly. This should be everywhere. And six months later, we brought it to Philly. And that was, I want to say it was the summer of 2014, late summer, early fall. So, sorry, could you say what year that was again? Uh, It was 2014. That was, okay, that was 2014. When Wait, you brought it to that, no, it had to be it was sooner. Five years ago, you're right. No, it yeah. wasn't five years ago. So t- 2012. 20, okay, 2012. Because I was going to say, I was like, I remember taking girl development classes in Philly before then. <laughs> like, so yeah. it was, I felt like you guys were already quite established at the time, too. Like it wasn't like a brand new chapter. So yeah, that that, that would make sense of like 2012. Uh, yeah, no, so that's so exciting. And, and that you were like, so when you start taking girl development classes, and I feel like most listeners probably know what girl development is. I mean, it's like a huge national, international organization that has um, coding workshops and related for, for women. Um, but when you first went, it was only in New York at the time. It was only, yeah, it was one, it was the first chapter. It was founded there by two women who they found themselves the only female developers in their class. And, and one of them would get heckled every time she would ask a question. And of course that she, she was very bummed about it. And she met other women who had the same experiences who ended up dropping out. So she said, you know what, we should form uh, an organization where women feel comfortable learning how to code where they can ask any question and you know have it be done in a judgment-free environment and she uh you know they want and joined together and and started it and now it's i want to say over 50 cities um uh, just in the u.s alone so it's really exciting to see how it's grown yeah, amazing. And when you were um, the chapter leader of the Girl Development in Philly, were you at the same time working at 123 Linkit, or I should say still the founder of 123 Linkit? I was, yeah. I was doing both at the same time. <laughs> and now, of course, you're doing, you do many things. Um, you are now an advisor for Girl Development, like the whole organization. You're also, of course, the founder of Roar for Good, and you're also um, a bo- on the board of directors at coded by kids. So I have to ask. Well, just a, oh. a quick correction. Advisor just for the Philly chapter. Oh, so, okay. Advisor yeah. for the Philly chapter. Okay. Uh, for Girl Develop It Philly. Okay, great. Uh, but nonetheless, you have a ton on your plate. Of course, you know, life outside of all of these wonderful work things that you're doing. So how do you, like, how does your normal day look like uh, managing all this stuff on your plate? <laughs> well, every day is never the same, which can be exciting at times and frustrating at other times. Uh, today, we have a photo shoot at Roar, and I was supposed to be a lot more involved with it, but we had mobile app testing to do. We had a couple meetings that had to do with forecasting for building more Athena devices. Um, yeah, it's hard It's hard to give a typical day because you just never know what, what each day is going to bring. You know, I worked yesterday, which was Memorial's Day, um, 
Uh, but yeah, it's, it's very hard to answer that question. Yeah, no, no worries. I just, um, I just am always so impressed by people who like are, yeah, running their own company and they have all these other things and then switching. Well, switching. well I do, oh. I do believe that if something's important to you, you make the time to make it happen. Um, if it's really a priority and you want to do it, you will make the time. And if things are not a priority, you won't make the time if you're busy. Yeah, very good point. I think that could also be applied to like, well, anything, including learning to code, right? And um, of course, a lot of listeners are teaching themselves how to code or teaching them some other kinds of tech skills, uh, which is actually a perfect transition because you um, were the chapter leader for the GDI Philly. And I remember when I was taking classes, it was the biggest chapter in the United States. And I think, I, I forget how you guys gauged the size, but maybe it was members of the meetup or the number of events that you were holding regularly. Um so you, of course, interface. I think that oh. New York was the biggest. We were the most active. So we would have multiple classes a week, whereas others might do one every week or every two weeks. We we just kept cranking out all kinds of classes, front-end development, back-end development, mobile eventually, databases. We just didn't stop. <laughs> Sit tight, podcast listeners. We're taking a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Does your current job bum you out? Are you learning to code on your own and find yourself getting stuck? With Launch Academy's Boston and Philadelphia-based coding bootcamps, you'll learn all the skills you need to launch your career in programming and software engineering in just 10 weeks. With a cutting-edge JavaScript curriculum that evolves every cohort to teach students the most current in-demand skills, it's the quickest route to becoming a software developer. Thanks to their eight-week prep program and a lifetime of postgraduate support, Launch Academy makes sure you get the job you want by continuing to teach you job prep skills after you graduate. That's why over 90% of Launch Academy graduate job seekers secure jobs as software engineers. Get started by attending an open house, a free Learn to Code event, or scheduling a one-on-one video interview. Make sure to ask about special offers for Learn to Code with me listeners during your admissions interview. Find out more at launchacademy.com. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And I remember taking like so many workshops in such a short time in the Phil at the at the Philly chapter. I think I took Good. like like seven or nine in like two months or something, something pretty crazy. Uh, but for people that are teaching themselves how to code, and whether they're you know, at home, like on the computer, like doing classes online, or they're doing workshops like girl development workshops. What are some of like the biggest stumbling blocks that you would wit- that you'd witness? And then what is some advice that you have in overcoming those? I would say what I witnessed, um, the biggest obstacles I witnessed are, I would say really two. One was this mentality where some of our students didn't want to ask for help where they felt like they could figure it out on their own and then they would get frustrated and get upset with themselves for not figuring it out, for example, and it would just deter them from moving forward in the whole class. Uh, So more of a personal, not wanting to ask for help type of mentality that unfortunately really did hold them back in moving forward. And I would say the other one was... Trying to learn alone can also be a frustrating experience. One of the benefits of Girl Develop It, that one of the benefits the classes provide and the workshop is that you learn with others um, and then you can converse with them when you get stuck on something. 
learning how to code is just like learning a new language. It's, it's difficult. It's going to take a lot of work and a lot of practice. And when you don't have someone right there to quickly ask them a question or to even just laugh about an issue that was really small that took hours to problem solve or, or debug that you come to a problem to that you don't, you know, you can get easily tripped up or discouraged and not want to continue. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I feel like that's something a lot of people, I could definitely relate to that. And that was also why I started going to curl development back when I started learning. I remember it was just, I had been learning on my own, so not taking any in-person classes for maybe just one to two or three months. And then once I found um, the classes, I began to go because, yeah, just being in that classroom setting is so helpful. And for me, at least, it really helps me focus more and just pay attention to what's going on. And I feel like more accountable to actually doing the work and, again, paying attention. Uh, So, yeah, I think there's like so many benefits um, to learning in that kind of environment. So, yeah, in any case... um, so, of course, more recently than you started Roar, um, if that's like your new company, uh, could you talk about that a little bit? And I'm also uh, really interested to, to learn how you've learned so much about um, hardware and wearables because that's something that's so <laughs> new. And I, I know there's classes, um, but definitely not as many as, you know, learn JavaScript or learn HTML and CSS. Yeah, that's a good question. I realized uh, an hour ago that, Today, four years ago today, I went on my trip that inspired war. So right after I became a U.S. citizen I and sold my first company, I the first thing I did is I <laughs> booked a six-month trip outside the country, and I went backpacking through South America. I went to Ecuador, Colombia, Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, and Peru and spent a month in each country. And for me, it was really more so to kind of take a break. It was the first time I was able to not be held to my circumstances, but have the freedom to do what I wanted to do. And I decided to take full advantage of it. Um, as amazing as it was, though, it was really eye-opening because every place that I would go to and every place that I would stay, I would either hear stories or talk to people that would share an incident of a time they had been attacked or abused or harassed. And it was just relentless. And I remember coming back, it was in late November of 2013, uh, living downtown. And my neighbor went out to her car when she was suddenly grabbed from behind and dragged into an alley and severely um, beaten and assaulted. And that was, you could say, the inspiration behind Roar and where the idea first took place. And initially, it was women used pepper spray and tasers and knives to protect themselves. But you have to actually, what I thought the issue was, is that you had to take them out of your pocket or your purse for them to be useful. So I thought with... Fitbit and Jawbone being really popular, all those fitness trackers, I thought, well, why not make it readily accessible uh, and make it wearable? And the first product idea that I came up with was actually called the Macelet, Mason a bracelet. I just thought, well, just take pepper spray and, and, and make it so that it's right there on your wrist. And it actually ended up being a really bad idea. I did about 
I want to say four to six months of market research, just talking to every woman uh, I came across and doing surveys online and just asking uh, women, what do you use? If you use anything at all to protect yourself, what do you like about it? What don't you like about it? And just finding out that most women actually don't like what's out there, uh, that one, they're afraid that they're going to use their own device against themselves accidentally. So for example, use the pepper spray maybe when it's windy out and it whips back and hits them in their own eyes. And two, and this was the most popular response, uh, it was, I'm afraid that I'm going to be overpowered and my own self-defense tool used as a weapon against me. And then to add to that, we found out that today's self-defense tools, not only have they not innovated in the last 80 years, but they've all been made by men for women not really taking into account their needs. And anyway, after all that research, we collected all the data and we decided that to be successful, we had to build a wearable that looked good, that could be discreet, that cannot be used against the person wearing it, that can help deter an attack and get help when needed. And that's how we eventually came up with Athena. And I don't want to make it sound like it was in an easy process because it was about 18 months of development to come up with the end factor before we went to manufacturing. One of the examples I'll give is that it used to be a bracelet and then we did mock self-defense classes. So we had women come in, we had an instructor come in, they performed you know, common attacks, grabbing by the arm, coming up from behind. And we learned that the worst place to wear a safety device is on your wrist. And if you can guess why, it's because now you only have the opposite hand to activate it. So if you're grabbed by that hand or even the other hand, how are you going to try to get to it? And we changed the form factor so that it was a pendant and it was worn uh, using a magnetized clip, for example. So it was a lot of building prototypes. Initially, they were, at, they were 3D printed. Uh, at NextFab, which is a local fab maker space, and just having different women wearing it, going to sororities and women's groups, talking about it, and asking one question. It was always the same question. Why would you not wear it? Why would you not use it? Then collecting that feedback and going back with our industrial designer and engineering team to redo the next iteration of the prototype, and so on and so on until we got to what we have today. Wow, that's that's such a, I mean, that's like such an amazing story. And I can't, I mean, like such kudos to you because I seriously cannot even imagine making like a physical product. Like that is just, and especially one that is as complex as um, what you guys created. So, okay, you, I want to hear a little bit more about like, it, like it itself. So it's called Athena, correct? That's like the yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I realized I didn't talk about what it does. So I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll well, I, and I, again, I clicked over to your website, so I'm like seeing it and whatnot. But yeah, if you could explain a little bit of how it works and yeah, what it does exactly, that'd be awesome. Sure. So Athena, we are calling it kind of a uh, the next stage in today's self defense tools. It's an alternative to them that you can use when you feel anxious, like you're walking home late at night or when you're in trouble to get help. And you can think of it as an alternative, a modern day version of Life Alert. So you wear it any which way you want, on your pants, pocket purse. And if you're walking home late at night, for example, you can triple tap it and it will send your location, your GPS location to pre-programmed friends and family. And they can watch over you until you get to your destination, until you get home, for example. 
Emergency mode is just that. If something were to happen, it can also sound a 95 decibel alarm in, a, in addition to sending your location. And in about eight weeks or so, it will also be able to call your 911 center so that you can get help immediately. So whether it's falling and breaking your arm, think of it as maybe an alternative to OnStar or you know something more serious um, happens, you can use it to get help immediately. Okay, so there's like three sort of modes. It sounds well. There, there's going to be three soon. Three soon. There's the one where like the, your contacts can get your GPS like location. They can kind of like watch you getting home or see like your location of where you are. The other one is like the um, I don't, I forget the what the word you use, but kind of sets off the actual alarm, so they'll be like notified more aggressively. Mm-hmm. And then the last one would be actually calling nine one one like from the device. Yeah, and the last one is actually coupled with a second one. Um, you just choose whether or not you want to turn on nine one one or not for that mode. Some people don't like the police. Some people don't want don't want nine one one called. Uh, but once you download the application and pair your Athena connected to your mobile device, you get to choose the different modes that it has that best fit how how you you would like to use it. Wow. So there's a mobile app. Which of course makes I mean makes total sense. I just like didn't consider that. Then the <laughs> mobile app that goes along with the wearable, and you okay you pair. So it's kind of like I well I relate to an Apple Watch because I have an Apple Watch. It's like I have like it kind of like goes yeah. along with my phone. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Cool. So yeah. wow. Yeah, that's really awesome. And yeah, you've been working on this for a while, so that's like really exciting. And on um, the website is really awesome. I just was like looking back. I think I went to it a while ago when you first were launching, and I just went back and it looks really awesome. Thank you. We just launched the redesign in late April. Um, we worked with a freelancer called Brian Huff that was just amazing. He did this interactive demo that I really like, so you can actually see how Athena works directly on the website um, and, and to give you a better idea of all the feature sets and, and so on. So I'm really, really proud of it. And the and the I would say that my favorite part of Roar and what we're doing is the social impact piece. So we're not, and the reason it's called Roar for Good is that we're not just looking to build products. We really want to make a difference and we really truly believe that we can. And the way that we've structured the company, it's a certified B Corp, is that for every sale, we take a percentage of the proceeds, 10%, and invest them in nonprofits that teach empathy. Because what we learned is that most attacks against women um, are due to gender inequality and discrimination, and that at the underlying core is lack of empathy, and that if we teach kids when they're most impressionable about consent and respect and healthy relationships, it directly correlates with decreasing harassment, abuse, and attacks against women. Um, so really, really excited about the potential of what that could bring. And I like to say that Athena is a short-term solution to existing self-defense tools, uh, but really the long-term, it's really the education that's going to have the biggest impact. Wow, that's that's so awesome. I didn't, again, learn, I didn't know that about the organization, but that's really great. Or no, I'm sorry, about that you're donating to these organizations. That's really awesome. Um, so then what are your future plans like with Athena and with Roar for Good? Do you one day want to have like multiple products? Are you going to be looking more at um, like preventing it from the source? So when, when you mentioned empathy, um, yeah, like what are your plans? Yeah, so right now, we did a crowdfunding campaign last October that did really well. We have about 10,000 pre-orders that we just started shipping 
in late March. So we're shipping in stages. We're going to be done by late July. And we are talking about the next generation product. So right, the, right now we're talking about adding a cellular chip so you don't need your cell phone, for example. We're also talking about doing a monthly partnership with different nonprofits where Every month, let's say we work with um, a local nonprofit, all donations will be sent to that nonprofit and a percentage of all sales sent to that nonprofit. Right now, it works where we're working with one, actually we're working with two different partners, but switching it so that we can collectively share uh, and do more empathy education across different organizations. So really, really excited about that. And And we want to eventually make it so that it's embedded into clothing. So we're talking about that and and what that could look like so that if you're going out, you know, if you wear yoga pants a lot, it's embedded right in the material. So you don't have to worry about having a different wearable, for example. There's a lot of different potential. and, And the biggest is just focusing down on what exactly we're going to be doing. Yeah, that's yeah, that's so cool. Embedded into clothing, that's really awesome. That's that's I've never yeah heard of that yet, but that's yeah. I mean, wearable everything, right? Like, there's so many different kinds of wearables nowadays, and I could definitely see that being um, a use case, and people finding that really useful. So, thank you so much, Yasmin, for coming on. Uh, where can people find you online? They can go to Roar for Good, R O A R F O R G O O D dot com, and it's Roar like I am. Women hear me roar. Awesome. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Again, the show notes for this episode can be found at learntocodewith.me forward slash podcast. If you're listening to this episode in the future, simply click the search icon in the upper navigation and type in Yasmin's name. It's spelled like Y A S M I. N-E, and the last name is M-U-S-T-A-F-A. If you like this episode, head on over to my website, learntocodewith.me, where you can get even more awesome code-related content, like my 10 free tips for teaching yourself how to code. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>